You're listening to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on real estate investing. Join us on our entrepreneurial voyage through the world of flipping houses, managing rental property, and building a real estate empire. Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. I am John Erico. I'm here with Ryan Goldfarb. Hey, I got an intro this time. Of course. And uh, we're actually on our second episode here with our special guest, Victor Liu from Clear Skies Title Agency. And if you missed the first episode where we did with Victor, where we discussed title issues, uh, I thought it was great. I loved it. We have uh, different businesses in the real estate space, a construction company, a management company, a a private equity fund that we're raising and are in the midst of assembling. And I would love to hear, Victor, your history and story about how you came to do what you do now. And maybe what we can do is start with a brief introduction. Maybe I'm hoping that people listening to this episode have listened to the previous episode, but if they haven't, can you briefly reintroduce yourself? And then I would love to hear your career journey. I know you graduated from college, I think you said in 2007. Is that right? So yeah, let me just hand it over to you and Cool. Um, yeah, so I'm Victor Liu. I'm owner of Clear Skies Title Agency. We are a, you know, we, we insure titles, so we insure people's home, home ownership, and um, that's what we do. And, you know, whenever somebody buys property, we make sure that they own it. I don't want to go back down that, down that path, but... There's a whole hour. Just yeah, a whole the hour for that. <laughs> so Clear Skies Title Agency, I think we're up to about 27 people on our team right now. My partner and I own a company called City Standard Data. My partner actually founded that in 2006. And then I joined him in 2007 when I graduated from Rutgers shortly thereafter. So Clear Skies is going to be, you know, is the second business that we've built. And, you know, we're, we're really full steam ahead and uh, growing really quickly. As far as career path, I've, I've never really had a real job, you know, to, to be perfectly honest with you. I graduated in 07 and, uh, you know, my partner, also named Victor, he invited me to kind of join him on this, uh, on building this uh, fledgling title search company. And then, you know, we started the two of us in uh, working from home. And then we hit the downturn of 2008, 2009. And we really weren't sure if we were going to make it. In 2009, in like a stroke of brilliance or a stroke of stupidity, we decided to kind of double down on that business. So just give you a little background. City Standard Data is a title searching company. So before, you know, when it was just two of us, you know, a few searches would kind of hold us over and kind of pay our bills. So I think when when I started, we were doing anywhere from uh, seven to 10 title searches per day. Well, back then we were getting paid a lot more for title searches. But as as that stuff started getting digitized and like there's some foreign companies coming, entering that space, you know, there's a lot of downward pressure on our prices. When I started in 2007, it was probably $100 a search, went down to $75 a search, down to $65 a search. And then to, to boot in 2008, the market crapped, crashed. And the bottom fell out, and we were doing, you know, five searches a day, three searches a day, one search a day, one search every other day, and that was not enough to pay the bills. So, you know, in our what we decided to do in 2009 was that instead of relying on outsourced title searchers, you know, these independent searchers at the county that we were paying per search, we decided to hire and train our own searchers. We would. Uh, cut our prices drastically to where we thought that they would go anyway. So, you know, there's, again, I mentioned there's a lot of downward pressure. We decided to go all the way to the bottom, 
to $35 a search uh, for a very, very simple refinance county uh, record owner search. We went down to $35 to search and we were able to capture as much as we could capture, as much volume as we could capture at that rock bottom price so that, and then we would make more money per search because we had a staff searcher that was being paid a, a salary as opposed to a per search fee. And so from 2009, you know, back up to 2014, you know, that model worked a lot better for us. So again, you know, like we decided to take on more risk when times were bad, which could have been a stroke of idiocy, or, you know, in our case, we were very successful as a result of it. So I'm actually really curious about a lot of things that you said, but just going back to that 2007 moment, what was it that I'm assuming that in Rutgers in college, you had no exposure to the title industry or title searches. Yeah. How did that decision, like, how did you make that decision? As I mentioned, my partner, Victor, he actually graduated a few years before me, three years before me to be exact. So we knew each other in college, but once he graduated, he went out to look for a job. As he'll explain it, he went on monster.com to find a job uh, back when monster.com was monster.com. And uh, the first job he found in real estate was at a title searching company. Uh, that company has since gone under, uh, but he did business development for that company and uh, was was doing really, really good at attracting clients. But from an operational standpoint, they weren't very good and they would lose uh, you know, every client that he brought in. So he decided, you know what, this is, this is untenable. I'm pretty good at this business development thing. So he went off and he started his own in 2006, which is you know kind of right before I, I came into the picture there. I'm really curious about what are the sort of unit economics of that business? So you're saying you got paid at one point, you went down to $35 a search. Like how, what is involved in a search? Like how much would you pay out just, to do a search? I also want to clarify from the outset, you guys had searchers, right? It was never you and Victor doing the searches yourselves. There, <laughs> in the dark days of 2008, Victor and I were going down to Hudson County to do searches ourselves. Okay. But generally it was something that you had either outsourced or in-house? Correct. Okay. Yes. So you would pay these individuals like an hourly basis to do a search? Post-2009, it became an hourly wage uh -huh. to do searches. So if, you know, when we were using independent searchers, we would get paid, you know, anywhere from $75 to $100 a search, and we would pay anywhere from $35 to $55 a search, and we would make the spread. That makes sense when you only have one search per county per day. When you hit volume, when you have volume and you have five searches in a day and a searcher can do, you know, three in an hour and you can pay them, you know, 15 to $20 an hour, then it's much more cost effective to pay somebody to go to that county mm -hmm. to do the searches on a salary as opposed to pay per unit. And you were just in one county at this no. time? No. So pre-2008, pre-2009, we were actually in New Jersey, New York, California, Pennsylvania, because we could use independent searchers, right? So where would you we find could, these searchers? There's like a forum for title searchers. Really? Wow. Uh, title, you know, I don't even remember what it It's kind of sad. I don't even remember who it was. We sent sourceoftitle.com or something like that. So wherever people would entrust us with orders, with title searches, we would go and find, you know, find opportunities where we could pay less than we could make. Mm -hmm. So those were the areas where we could actually make money. But when we decided to hire our own searchers, we decided... We wanted to be really, really good at this title searching thing. We wanted really, really good searchers. And so we couldn't hire in all these different geographies and try to be good in all these different geographies. We decided to just really focus on New Jersey. You started with one 
employee, I'm guessing. Yep. And how did that grow to multiple searches? Yeah, so or? today we have um, prob- we have 25 employees with that company. Uh, I would say about 50% of them, if not a little bit more than 50%, are searchers, and we cover all of New Jersey. What, what was it about the way that you guys trained them that allowed them to be, in your eyes, better searchers? So I remember, you know, I would be, I would be using a searcher and I would ask them for status on something. Uh, and if I became a little bit bothersome, I would get cursed out. And I'm the client in this relationship, but I was very, very dependent on these searchers because there's not that many of them in each county. So really felt like I was paying these searchers and I was also working for them. That relationship, I felt like, wasn't something that was conducive to actually improving the process. So now we have our own searchers, and we can train them our way, and they work only for us. And you know, this way, we can kind of create create this uh, mutual channel of communication where they can tell us how they they can do better and how we can do better to communicate with them. Also, we can kind of implement more technology. So you know, if it's an independent searcher, we might not be able to. They might not be willing to come into our portal to accept their work. Whereas, you know, if we unroll a certain piece of technology to assign work or to upload work, our own searchers are much easier to, much more adaptable to those kinds of uh, innovations. Model of employing their own searchers, or was this, are you like early in this process of doing it? Uh, I would say we were a little bit, uh, we were on the earlier end, but I think the the market kind of shifted towards that direction. There's no, you know, it's really, really difficult to pay an independent searcher when prices are down to $35 to $55 for, for us. So, I mean, there's there's a few companies out there that are bigger than us and that employ their own searchers. And um, it's definitely not a unique model. But as far as going all the way to $35 to gain market share, I feel like that was something that was kind of a, a shock to the market. Your value proposition essentially was we are cheaper. Like we'll do the work, but we're much cheaper than any of our competitors. There's two things that we kind of, number one, we are cheaper. Number two is that we actually have a a centralized office for you to call. Why that is important is that some of these vendor management companies or these uh, title companies that we were servicing, they're out in Michigan, you know, Atlanta, whatever the case may be. And they wouldn't want to call a different searcher for status in every county. Right. So we gave them a centralized hub and said, we can take care of New Jersey for you. We actually added this, well, had a customer service element to what we did instead of forcing them to make, you know, a thousand phone calls per day. We allowed them to just make 26, uh, how many states are there? 50. When you started, I think you said in 2009, when you started bringing guys on or searchers on full time, were they, did you have enough work to feed them essentially eight, nine hours a day worth of work and a half day of searches? I mean, there's definitely some leaner days. Back in 2009, when we were still kind of getting traction for this new model, an important piece of it was that our searchers had to go to multiple counties in order to have enough days work, right? So our first searcher probably had to go to four or five counties per day. So every county, the search process is a little bit differently, uh, searches a little bit differently. So that first searcher had to be super smart and uh, super adaptable and you know really able to figure things out himself. We hired somebody that we knew for a very long time, one of the smartest guys I know, to kind of lead that lead that process, and and you know he kind of ran with it, and he, you know, it wouldn't have worked without him. During this time, are do you guys have an office? Are you working out of your homes? Is it like how? What does the business look like? Uh, yeah. So we started in Jersey City. Uh, so that's always gonna have a soft spot in our heart. Likewise. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, that's true. Yeah. So 2007 to 2008, uh, we worked from home. It's just the two of us. 
And then 2008, we decided we needed to buckle down a little bit. So we got a very, very small office uh, in Jersey City, in Journal Square. Uh, and then in the short three years from 2008 to 2011, we jumped from office to office, you know, like always kind of sizing up a little bit. So uh, we moved around quite a bit back th- back then. But yeah, we, we we quickly had like a central hub where operations ran out of. What was the catalyst for the growth from 2008, 2009 through 2011, 2012, 13, 14? Was it just riding the wave of the market as things started to recover? Or were you guys doing a lot of things proactively to bring on new business? So 2008 was bad. Uh, 2008 was really, really bad. And nobody knew what was happening, right? And the companies were going, you know, big, big companies were going under, going bankrupt, you know, and there was just no activity whatsoever. In 2009, 2010, the foreclosure boom started happening. And with our prices and with our responsiveness and our, our speed turnaround times, uh, a lot of foreclosure company, foreclosure firms or foreclosure servicers would contact us for title searches. So then we they, wrote- They sought you out? Both, right? Okay. So, you know, we put ourselves out there. They sought us out. People, mm-hmm. you know, one thing would lead to another. And we started, you know, that volume really started picking up, really started picking up. I remember, I don't know what year it was, but after Sandy or Irene, we also got this humongous project for all the beach towns and doing title searches for all the beach towns because they needed to see if the people that were applying for relief were actually the owners of the properties. Wow because there's a lot of fraud going on then too. So uh, how many companies like this were there or are there? Like dozens, hundreds, or like what is the playing field for this? And where do you fall within that landscape? So I would say there are a handful, a handful of bigger statewide, statewide operations like this. There are more than I've heard of because some of these companies are captive. So they only work for one title agency. So those I might not I might not hear about quite as often, but then the ones that are actually you know competing in the same space as us, trying to get you know that are independent and searching for multiple clients uh, is probably fewer. During these times when you're building your first company and and um, growing, are you guys taking a salary? Are you compensating yourselves well? Are you putting it all in the business or like how how does it look for you guys individually as owners? I would say. In 2007, we were just paying ourselves out whatever we made. Uh, we were not reinvesting it. We really didn't understand the concept of paying ourselves a salary. In 2009, there was no salary to go around. You know, everything went to the searchers to rebuild. After that, you know, I don't think I really started taking a salary till I want to say 2012, 2013. We didn't really understand the concept. So, you know, neither my partner nor I ha- had built a company before that. So, you know, understanding how to take take a salary and make sure pay yourself a fair wage so that you can evaluate the business. These are, you know, lessons that I've kind of learned much more with the second business than with the first. With the first, we were just kind of, I want to say, flying by the seat of our pants and trying to, you know, and, and we went through a lot in the first couple of years of, uh, of running that business that we really didn't focus on how to build a business the right way. So what was the decision then to start this Clear Skies agency and how did that come about? Sure. Uh, yeah. So I think both my partner and I saw title insurance as a natural next step uh, since we had uh, expertise in the title searching space. We thought that uh, having a title insurance agency was really just an extension of doing title searches. In retrospect, that's not actually true. There's a lot more that goes into a title agency than title searches. But so we knew we wanted to go in the space. We kind of tried a few times. But in order to get an underwriter to 
kind of sign you up as an agent. They really wanted to see a lot of experience as a title agent and an ability to get a proven ability to get business, right? Because that's the most important piece of it. They wanted us to either hire a seasoned title agent on board from the get-go to kind of give us credibility or to do a joint venture with an existing title agency and really just kind of do biz dev for the existing title agency. And neither of those sounded really appealing to us because we really wanted to do things our way and really to build for the long run. So in 2014, one of our clients, one of our title agency clients, I guess she was kind of thinking about retiring, but she really wanted to, she was a kind of a solopreneur. Uh, she ran the business out of her, the title agency out of her office, uh, out of her basement. And it was very, very successful. But, you know, as she was looking to retire, she saw some potential in us and she offered to kind of vouch for us in order to get this underwriter to back us. Yeah. So we were, so this is we were, an underwriter from a title company. Correct. A title company to kind of, to kind of take on our risk. So she vouched for us and we kind of, you know, so in 2014, we kind of set up shop uh, and she kind of taught us a, a whole bunch of like the, the operations of a title agency. But uh, we kind of took it from there and ran with it. In the early days, how did you guys balance starting Clear Skies Title with your pre-existing business, which I believe is still operational today, right? Yes. And it's actually very, very operational without much involvement from neither from either Victor or myself. Between 2009 and 2000. 14, we, we found some really, really, really outstanding people to, to make sure that, that that company continues to run, continues to grow. And, you know, so we're really fortunate to have those people to give us the freedom to kind of focus ourselves on a, a new business. And I would say that we definitely dedicate most of our focus on the on Clear Skies title more so than the previous business. In fact, we try to separate ourselves from the previous business because we don't want the clients of the first business to think that we are uh, that there's some sort of conflict of interest. So we try not we we don't even really know who the clients are of the first business anymore, and we try to separate ourselves uh, as much as possible. Does Clear Skies use the first business for searches? I'm assuming yes, and there's a lot of efficiencies that come with that when. You know the the county land uh, the the county search is actually a very expensive piece of it. So when a deal dies for whatever reason, a lot of companies will have to charge a cancellation in order to recoup that cost. For us, we're able to either recoup less or not recoup anything at all and be okay with it because you know those that's our expense on both ends, and, and we get it. You know it's our expense, and then the fact that we can call our searchers and they can kind of prioritize our work every now and then. I'm sure they don't love it when we always favors, but sometimes it has to be done. Talking through the transition to Clear Skies Title, how did, in the early days, what were you guys doing to cultivate new business as, as a new entrant in the space that you, know, you really didn't know all that well? So one major piece of our success with Clear Skies is that we kind of thought about what markets were underserved and what markets we had a bit of a competitive advantage in. And the first space that we thought about there's a couple of different. One of them was the like some different Asian American community groups. Like there's an Asian American Real Estate Association that uh, my partner got very involved with. And the other piece of it was real estate investors. So title agencies notoriously do not like to serve real estate investors uh, because number one, their deals are generally cheaper. Uh, so we make less money. Uh, number two is their title is a lot dirtier, which involves a lot more work, which means we make a lot less money. Unfortunately for us, or fortunate for us, we really like 
real estate investors. We, you know, a lot of them are our friends and we, you know, we can develop relationships with them. So that's kind of a space that we entered into. And um, I hope that we did a good job for them. And, you know, we really understand what they really worked hard to understand what it is they do and what it is that they value. And they've been so good to us with, you know, their repeat business and, you know, making sure that and publicizing us and shouting us out on social media and stuff like that. So that was kind of like another really, really fortunate accident that happened to us. Um, and, And we're really blessed to have gone that route. What did you guys do to specifically infiltrate that community? Because just as a testament to what you just said, uh, I'm in a lot of real estate Facebook groups and go to a lot of different real estate meetups. And I see your guys' name plastered everywhere. Uh, and oftentimes, it's not even a direct result of you guys saying to someone, hey, like, we'll, we'll pay some money to sponsor this. It's often just someone asks for a title company recommendation. And the first name that is posted is Clear Sky's title. I think one really important piece of it is showing up, right? So we went to a lot of these events. We supported these events. We supported people. That's kind of the low-hanging fruit. You know, by showing up, you've already beaten, you know, 90% of people. The second piece of it was that we really took the time to listen to what the problems in that community were. So instead of saying, oh, you're trying to do a double closing, no way, right? I would say, okay, why do you want to do a double closing? You know, why don't you want to try this other avenue? Or, you know, how, what can we do to facilitate that transaction in the way that it needs to be facilitated in order to do it the right way? Sometimes there are times that we can't do what the investor, what the client wants us to do, and that's okay. But we want to at least have exhausted every avenue and every possibility before we say no. And uh, I think, you know, with the, with the challenges that real estate investors come across, they're very nuanced challenges that we can try to add value to that conversation, even if we can't, you know, help it. When you started Clear Skies, uh, maybe unlike the first business, did you go in and say, I'm going to invest this amount of money into the business? Like I'm like, I have a, like a business plan, like I'm going to invest this amount of money, et cetera, et cetera. Or was it more like we'll start it and then we'll, we'll just see where it goes. So the answer to the business plan question is, no, we didn't have a business plan going into Clear Skies. In fact, I think my partner and I had pretty different visions on how we wanted to do it. So I really took after our mentor, who was kind of like a solopreneur, and I kind of wanted to be a really, really knowledgeable title agent, but I wanted to be the only person that ran it. Like, I, I wanted to do that. Be very lean. Uh, yeah, I wanted to be lean. I wanted to be very, you know, very choosy about our clients. Uh, whereas my partner, you know, was thinking a little bit bigger. And then... Looks like he won out. <laughs> he won out because I had a baby and I had no choice but to hire more help because I couldn't I couldn't be there for, you know, 14-hour days anymore. I, I needed to be home. And so that kind of forced my hand. And, you know, uh, we're much more, we're much better for it because now we have a really, really crack team to, uh, t- that's kind of learning how to solve more problems than I could have solved myself. And what was the delineation of responsibility between you two? Yeah. So the, the main lesson that we learned from our first business to our second business is we, we cannot stop selling. So we might have slacked off on selling for the first business, which put us in a really bad situation in 2008. Maybe it couldn't have helped, been, been helped, but we weren't, we weren't really generating sales. So with Clear Skies, um, we made it very clear that from the get-go that the, uh, Victor Ng would focus on sales all the time, right? And I would try not to pull him back into the operations. And my job was to learn as quickly as possible how to run a title agency, how to 
how to manage people, how to solve the problems that come across, how to answer phone calls and issue commitments and handle settlements and you know do post-closing all at the same time so that I could handle the operations so that we could continue selling and not lose those customers. And then our big thing between the both of us is that no matter what we did, we wanted to make sure that people loved us, right? So what, whether we were selling to people or whether we were servicing their deals is that we wanted everyone to not just think we were okay or that they would use us again, but to truly love us. And uh, that was, that was, that's kind of been our motto or informal model motto uh, since then. What did you do to make sure that people loved you? Like what were the techniques that you used? So from a sales standpoint, we made sure that we never did the hard sell because those people are annoying. Even if people use you because they want you to get out of their office, they don't love you. We'd rather not have the deal, but not hard sell. And so that was important. Showing up at people's events, supporting a lot of people and their events, that was another you know, avenue for the, the sales love. From an operational standpoint, you know, understanding people's files. So when somebody calls in, if Ryan Goldfarb comes in, I know exactly what deal he's working on. And I know exactly what, I can name that address quicker than he can on that phone call or just as quickly as he can. And I can tell him what problems are. So really being knowledgeable about what the needs are and to really know what their needs are before they need it. Is that a matter of, you mentioned at some point using technology. Is it technology or just training people that would answer the phone to be like, hey, make sure to remember this person's address or some combination? That was just the way I function in the beginning. These days, I don't expect my my team to know people's addresses before they call. Although I'm, you know, a technology solution would probably be awesome for this. These days, you know, we just focus on investing a lot into our operations. So in the beginning, we didn't have any salespeople besides Victor. So instead of paying a salesperson a commission, we took that commission and we reinvested it to make sure that there's always somebody answering the phone, that the person answering the phone is like a happy or making sure that the that the team that we have are, you know, is is fully equipped to provide this amazing service that will make people love us. So was the first person that you hired after you started the business that like a person answered the phone? Was that the first? No, the first uh, hire? our first hire for Clear Skies was the same first hire for City Standard because he was the somebody. Same person. The same yeah, person. Same person. Yeah, yeah. We uh, somebody that we trust have like enormous amounts of trust in somebody that could build out systems or could figure stuff out. Uh, the same qualities that made him su- such an awesome first employee for the first company were the same quality. So he actually left the first company and went, you know, went somewhere else. And I pulled him back for the second company to kind of do the same thing to figure out, figure out how to do stuff for the so he was guys. Like an operations person essentially or a cog in that part of the business. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So uh yeah, he's an operations person, although he does he does sales today. Uh today he does sales for us. So over the years, how have the challenges that challenges that you guys face evolved? I mean, I assume it's a much different beast to be running a two or three man show versus I think you said twenty seven employees now. Yeah, so I mean, right now our our biggest focus is uh, finding ways to scale. So building out the the sales funnel. Yeah, so we we've actually since then we've hired like really really quality business development reps that are going out there to develop new relationships. To give an example, you know, Victor has been, you know, really instrumental in getting us to this point and really growing, developing these relationships for us. Uh, and you know, we're really lucky to have those skills. But because he's so good at it, we haven't developed a sales team to take us to point C. And now, you know, we, now that he has a child and you know his time is limited, so now we are kind of 
scrambling backwards to try to find, you know, build out a sales team to make sure that we can continue to this trajectory of growth. You got you and Victor have been sounds like attached at the hip for at least the last 13, 14 years. Yeah, we, we've known each other longer than we've known our wives. And so how have you guys maintained, maintained, I assume, at least a cordial working relationship? But it sounds like a relationship that goes a little bit deeper than that and kept it healthy, I would assume and hope. Yeah. So partnership is a, is a funny thing. You know, people often tell you don't go into business with your, with a friend or with a family member. And in that sense, you know, Victor and I are, are, are extremely lucky. I think in the beginning, so back in college, when we knew each other in college, we were part of different organizations together. We actually went into business together while in college uh, in a multi-level marketing kind of operation. And that's, and we really had a really, really good time doing that together, even though the business didn't work out and may or may not have been scammy, but like we really had fun building that business together. And so we kind of knew that going into our first business. These days, you know, we, <laughs> we're extremely close friends. Our families are close, uh, are close to each other. I'd love to say that, you know, it's because we do something that makes us compatible, but I think we are just naturally compatible people and naturally very, very flexible people. So, you know, like we have we we discuss things and we're we're both very open minded about each other's needs and you know points of view and stuff like that. We don't disagree very often, and when we do disagree, we try to stay in our own lane. So depending on depending on whether it's the operations disagreement versus a sales disagreement, and the last piece of it is like we try to stay very open minded about each other's points of view. So we we definitely hash it out and we figure out you know where that person is coming from. I think the last piece is. We will defer to each other more so than to any client or to any employee. Meaning, we will we respect each other's opinion. But we're very respectful about the, that you know that relationship. What is your sort of day to day right now? Are you mostly managing other people? Are you doing like strategic thinking? Are you interacting with clients or? It's a difficult question to answer because I, I try to figure that out for myself right now as far as where I'm transi- transitioning myself into. I definitely don't look at every file. In fact, I don't look at most files. I generally don't know what's closing today or this week anymore. I think of myself as more uh, kind of a, a systems person. So I, I focus a lot on, on mapping out our process and making sure our process is systemized as opposed to uh, reinventing the wheel for every file. On top of that, you know, I try to think of myself as the strategic thinker about where we're going to go this year, this quarter, uh, next three years, and I try to, you know, try to figure out the best way to clarify that vision for the team and the best way to make sure that that is that everyone's on the same page with that vision. I'm sure you've grown a lot since when you first joined Victor at City Standard. How have how have you evolved and like how has your perception of yourself changed in that time frame? I guess in the past two years, I, I've been on this journey of uh, self de- of personal development and uh, self discovery. Before, I used to think you know uh, I used to think I, I knew everything, but now you know I'm a, I'm a voracious reader. Uh, I'm on Audible. You know, like I fall asleep to audiobooks. I joined an organization called Entrepreneurs Organization of of owners of companies over a million dollars. Uh, and then we have like a kind of a support group that we meet once a month, closed door, no phones, four hours, and where we really share our deepest, darkest secrets. Um, and then they have really cool learning events. Um, 
that you know teach you how to how to run businesses and it really just kind of opens your mind to the possibilities out there and how you know how other business owners and other entrepreneurs do things was there a particular catalyst for that change from changing from from thinking that you knew everything to being more receptive to learning and development the biggest catalyst was uh i, I guess i i felt like there was more and so i in i want to say 2017 to then 18 i went to tony robbins you know uh, a Tony Robbins event. And, you know, that kind of unlocked a different side of me that I didn't realize existed or that I was kind of closing off for myself. It just took me way out of my comfort zone. And from then on, I've been trying to find, you know, ways to to improve myself. So um, it's been another, really cool. Chalk another one up to that Robbins fella. Yeah, I know. Tony Robbins. Monster. <laughs> Where are you hoping to go with the business? Do you want to keep running the business as it is, grow it in New Jersey, expand different states, different types of businesses? We really want to keep true to our motto of making people love us or our mission of keep making people love us. I feel like if we start spreading too far geographically, that'll be more difficult to do. There's still so much so much opportunity here in New Jersey. We, we have so many great relationships here in New Jersey. We really just want to, I think for the time being, we really want to focus on you know, serving New Jersey the best way we can. I think that we still have a lot of room for, you know, really, really tremendous growth. I'd like to see our business hit $15 million in the next three years. I can't really even map out how we're going to get there or why I want $15 million. Uh, but it's just a number that kind of is kind of a shining star in my in my mind. So uh, that's kind of where I pegged our goal. Is that, uh, And that's $15 million, That's revenue? Yes, gross revenue. And... Uh, that transitions to, I guess, uh, a natural next question. What what are the key metrics that you guys look at in running your business? And to what extent do you keep your eye on such metrics? Okay. Metric? Uh, yeah. So this is something that we've been learning about a lot recently. Gross revenue is obviously very important. Our revenue per deal. So, you know, if a, if we have better and bigger deals, we make more. So quality of our work is uh, our revenue per deal. We look at our profit margin. So uh, I learned somewhere that if you're at 12%, then you're not investing enough back into your company. You're not spending enough on your company. If it's under 8%, then you're probably starting to get unhealthy and you probably need to be more profitable and you're probably spending too much money. And 10% is like a nice and healthy company. So like a 8% would be a growing company. A 12% would be a very stable company, like a, a very mature company. And 10% is uh, health. So we try to try to hit that 10% as much as possible. Uh, from an operational standpoint, this might be a little bit more uh, in the weeds, but we track our you know number of new applications, turnaround time, number of closings, the amount of money we lose per file, which, you know. How it, do you track these things? What's the, do you guys have like a proprietary system that you've built or do you, are nope, you on a everything is on Google or? Sheets and uh, it's just on spreadsheets. So huh? it's, uh, it's on a big board. If you come to our office, you'll see a TV mounted on the wall with a scorecard. And uh, we use that scorecard. We collect data once a week. Every department director reports their numbers onto that scorecard. This year, we're going to, or in the next couple of months, we're going to try to refine that, replace some of the uh, key performance indicators with other ones. And um, yeah, th this is, like I said, this is a, a journey that this piece of it is something that I'm still learning about and uh, really spent the last year trying to develop. When you talked about processes and, and that, I'm assuming you mean business processes like within the company, yes. right? Are those things that you iterate on? Do you try something and doesn't work and do something else? Or are the things that you, hey, I read this book or the strategy and this is what I want to implement? I guess six months ago, I broke down the title process for a standard deal into 37 steps. 
And our first quarter goal is hit 70% of those steps, uh, 70% of 70% of those steps, 70 and 70 goal. And, you know, not every deal is going to be the same. Not every deal is going to have each of these steps. So the goal is for 70% of the steps to be measured and for every deal or for the average deal to hit 70% of those. So that's kind of been, and it's really, really, some of these steps are really hard to measure, right? So we, we have little hashtags in our emails. Sometimes, you know, our clients see them like, what, what is this? But we have hidden hashtags in every email so that we can capture when a specific email, for example, we have something called the intro email, our seven day email, 14 day email. We have our cash to close email, our closing confirmation email. So all these are a specific milestone that we're trying to find ways to capture and put onto. And for, you know, we use Zapier to kind of automate the tracking of these things. Uh, and then we find where the holes are make sure all notice settlements are recorded. And then on top of that, we're going to add certain layers of audits. And then we might be hiring some virtual assistants to help us with those audits. So you're sort of quantizing, quantifiably measuring these things that are more ephemeral, like did an email go out or what did a, I don't know what the steps are. I'd be like, what did a client say or, or whatever? You're trying to track those at that level of granularity. Yeah. So one thing I, one thing that we often complain about is, you know, sometimes clients don't, always communicate with us. And then all of a sudden it's the day of closing. And they say, oh, we need to close in a day. And then all of our attention is, all of our resources are now devoted to that one closing when it didn't have to be that way. You know, we spend 20 days sitting on this file and then there's no action taken on it. So our our goal is to communicate in a, in a very regular way so that it is not necessarily our fault that, so that it, we've done everything we can to not get surprised by a closing. So every now and then we still get surprised, but we're a lot more prepared for that. Yeah, it's pretty granular. And uh, that's that's the main impetus for a lot of our steps. You mentioned Zapier as a tool that you guys use for tracking that. To what degree across the business are processes automated versus reliant on a human carrying out a particular? All of our steps, uh, with the exception of very few, are still human triggered. So even if Zapier is drafting an email for us, that email does not get sent without a human click. So for example, your document has been recorded uh, is an email that we we send out whenever uh, somebody's deed has been recorded, or somebody's mortgage has been recorded. But can they just uh, have a, an extra layer of oversight, make sure? Yeah. And, you know, like what we do is so so nuanced that it's, you know, it's not one size fit all for for everything, right? So we need to be prepared for that. So as we scale, I, I, ideally, we are more technologically savvy that we can kind of account for more of those possibilities and we can do things a little bit more automated without human touch. But we still value that human touch quite a bit. You know, in a service-oriented business, I think people are going too far down the automation path. Are there other... Uh, pieces of technology that you find very helpful. We did an episode on the the technology that we use. And for example, we use Slack all, all the time to communicate even between the two of us. So we use Zapier quite a bit. What is uh, Airtable? Airtable is like a, it's like a Google Drive for databases, right? So it's like very useful. You don't have to program a database. You can just kind of use it out of the box or and everything is housed on the cloud. But we do have a software that's very title specific. And it's, uh, you know, it's very, it's a, was a legacy software. All of our data is housed in that software, uh, and to try to get it out and have it communicate with other softwares has been uh, difficult. But uh, I try to have as many conversations with, uh, you know, technology-focused people or like technology professionals um, to see, 
you know, what their thoughts on our processes are and to see, find ways to automate those. So uh, we have some promising things, you know, in early stages of discussion. Foresee LAN records transitioning to the blockchain next year, the following year? Tomorrow. <laughs> uh, so that's something in I'm working on. Uh, yeah. no, in, in all seriousness, do you, do you see any kind of paradigm shifts, like complete overhaul in the way that things are done? There will probably be overhaul. There's always going to be overhaul. And, you know, blockchain is obviously a very hot topic in title. I find difficult to imagine, uh, maybe because I'm small-minded, but also, you know, specifically in New Jersey, where, you know, lot sizes are very different. Lot sizes and lot shapes are very different, right? And people subdivide, they consolidate lots all the time. So what is your unit for blockchain? Like, what are you going to include in that chain what are you going to include in that chain? So if you have like a, a rectangular lot, but with a little, little annex somewhere else, and I wish I could, you know, I wish this was visual, but you have a little annex somewhere else. And your blockchain is only describing that, that rectangular unit from, from, how do you describe that additional annex, right? So in Colorado or California, everything is parcel numbers. So you can use that unique parcel identifier and you can even combine two different parcel numbers and all these parcels are exactly the same size and are exactly in the same place all the way back from when the state was formed. But in the 13 colonies, everything traces back and everything's been subdivided and, and split up and combined so many different times with so many different interests with easements and stuff like that, that... I find it much more unreasonable to think that blockchain is going to system, to digitize that. I feel like I've struck a nerve here. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's something I'm, I'm interested in and something, you know, and I think there is potential for blockchain. And I think, you know, but it's definitely going to hit, you know, again, the Western states more uh, much quicker than it's going to hit the 13 colonies. Can you take me through the, how the company has grown since you started, Clear Skies has grown since you started it? Like, 2015, what was your headcount? What was your, you know, approximate revenue? And then how did that change year to year? Okay, so we started in 2014 with two of us. 2015, October, is when we hired employee number one. And then we kind of made a... In 2016, we kind of made a bold move. And uh, I guess one of our clients was uh, Provident Bank at the time. And the the vice president of vice president of loan closings or vice president of loans or something like that uh, told me she was leaving. And I, I said, we have to have her. And we probably, you know, probably couldn't afford her at the time, but we had to have her. And so we we hired her in 2016. And she's kind of been this, this pillar in our company that's, uh, that really allows us to, allows Victor and myself to either focus on sales or focus on, you know, growing the business because she's just kind of been a, a rock in our operations. We're about to make our next move to an even bigger space, uh, you know, somewhere around 10,000 to 13,000 square feet uh, to give us enough room to grow to our next, you know, our next milestone. Enough about how great you guys are. Can you, if you're open to talking about it, uh, can you identify any, any big mistakes or failures you've had over the years? Every mistake seems much bigger when you're in it. We've been a victim of wire fraud before. Fortunately, we caught it. How was that caught? The seller's attorney said, oh, the seller's here to pick up their check. And I said, uh, we, wired the, we wired it. And they said, no, he's here right in the office right now to pick. And fortunately, the money got frozen before the scammer was able to withdraw it from his wow. bank. Do you have insurance for something like that? Is that a, an insurable thing? Yes. So cyber insurance has become a huge um, 
a huge topic in our industry. Um, unfortunately, cyber cyber insurance is such a new product that people haven't quite figured insurance companies haven't quite figured it out. And you really have to read the policy very, very carefully. I had to hire an attorney to review the policy to make sure that it would protect against the things that we see every day. That sounds tremendous, all that you've done in a short amount of time. Victor, if people want to reach out to you... The website is www.clearskiestitle.com. Skies is S-K-I-E-S. Awesome. Thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you guys for listening. And uh, please feel free to follow us on your favorite podcast app or uh, website. And we'll be back uh, soon with another episode. Thank you. All right, it's been fun. Thanks. Don't forget to visit us at BrickXBrickRealEstate.com for free content to help you along your real estate journey and to follow along on our projects. Subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app and engage with us online via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and BrickXBrickRealEstate.com. See you next time on the Brick by Brick podcast.